If you have your Bibles today, would you find Psalm 22, the 22nd Psalm? As you're finding that, I would ask you today, if you are a visitor among us, if you take time to fill out a visitor card before you leave and just leave it laying there in your pew and one of our people will pick it up after everyone's gone, we sure would like to have a record of your visit today. So uh, between now and the time you leave, if you just take time to do that, we would greatly appreciate you completing one of those visitor cards. We have been in a study through the book of Psalms. Last week, got derailed a little bit on that study, but we're going to pick right back up. And God in his providence has placed us at a strategic psalm on this resurrection Sunday. Psalm 22 is a psalm of David, a psalm that some scholars look at and say, well, David here is expressing his feelings of depression. He's facing these terrible enemies, yet he has a confidence in God's past provision in his life. And so there's a joy in God's steadfast faithfulness to him. Other scholars look at this psalm and they see a prophetic text as the Holy Spirit led David to write what would come and happen in regards to the Messiah. And in fact, as we read Psalm 22, I think as you follow along, you'll pick up on the descriptions of the Messiah. You'll pick up on the descriptions of the crucifixion, because this is a psalm of the cross, but it is also a celebration of victory that the cross leads to. And so that's what we want to cover today. Psalm 22 begins... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry out in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and am not silent, but you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me ridicule me and they shoot off at the lip. They shake their head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. For there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bastion encircle me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me, and the congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord... Do not be far from me. Oh, my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, 
from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. A posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, that he has done this. Psalm 22. If we look at this psalm and we begin to divide it apart and examine it, we get descriptions of the Lord Jesus. Today, I want us to look at these descriptions and see where they lead us in regard to who Jesus is and what he's done. So let's just delve into this. As we look at the descriptions, what is described here? To begin with, we see this, the description of one forsaken by God. That's where the psalm opens, the first two verses. It is the description of one who has been forsaken by God. You see, Jesus, in becoming sin for us, was forsaken, abandoned by God the Father. This opening statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is so familiar to you because, well, You've read that in the Gospels, where Jesus on the cross quotes this verse from this psalm. Because he was indeed forsaken under the weight of sin. You see, the desperation of the cross, the despair of Christ's suffering, was in the abandonment of God. Being abandoned by God the Father. That's where the suffering of the cross really comes. God the Father withdrew his presence from the only begotten Son. You see, Jesus, as the Bible teaches, is God who came in human form, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. God the Son and God the Father had always been in perfect communion, never separated at all. Even when he took on human form, he was in constant communication with the Father. Yet now on the cross, the Father withdraws his presence from the Son. He's abandoned. He's forsaken. He's forsaken under the weight of sin. You see, Jesus offered himself as the sacrifice for sin. In that, he experienced the separation that sin brings. The Bible very clearly teaches us that sin has a consequence, and that is separation from God. When the Bible speaks of the death that sin brings, that's a spiritual death, a spiritual separation from God. Those who hear my voice at this very moment who have never come to a saving faith in Jesus, you are separated from God. You are spiritually separated from him. 
That separation continues on into eternity for those who fail to come to faith in a physical separation as they dwell in a place of torment. That's the forsakenness of the cross. That's the abandonment of God. That's the consequence of sin. That's what Jesus was enduring. That's the description we have here in this psalm. Now, it does not diminish God's righteousness, his justice, or his holiness. In fact, verse 3 very clearly states that God is holy. He's just in this. He's right in this. In his holiness, he can have no part of sin. In his holiness, he's just in punishing sin. Because he is holy, Isaiah 59.2 says he must turn his back upon sin. He can't even look upon sin. And as Jesus dons our sin for us, the Father must turn from him and leave him abandoned there on the cross, forsaken under the weight of sin, to face the punishment of sin. Because he's holy. To be true to his own character, this had to happen. So as the Bible teaches us that Jesus bore our sins upon his own body, what we understand is that he was forsaken to experience the full wrath of God upon him. God's wrath, his full fury, anger, displeasure, punishment of sin was placed upon Jesus because he took our sin upon himself. And there on the cross, he calls out in a forsaken state because he's experiencing the wrath of God. God did not cease to be holy in this moment. This happened because God is holy. And in fact, his holiness is magnified in this reality and in the reality that it took the sacrifice of Jesus to reconcile us unto God. And so as we read this psalm, we see this description of Jesus in his forsakenness. But here's what I want you to know. In the moment that Christ was forsaken, humanity was being reconciled unto God. Jesus was abandoned and forsaken so that you and I could be reconciled, put back right with God. In his forsakenness, we have benefited. Romans chapter 5, beginning with verse 10, says... For when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. See, there in Romans, we find that through the death of Jesus, we can be reconciled unto God. And not only through his death, but there. By his life, we are brought into spiritual life to live with God. See, it's the redemptive work of cross that allows us, the redemptive work of the cross that allows us. You hear me? The cross, it allows us to be rescued from being a forsaken outcast because Jesus was forsaken for us. Because of the cross, we can be reconciled unto God. He was forsaken for us. We sing a worship song that has a line in it that says, I am forgiven, you were forsaken. I am accepted, you were condemned. That's what happened on the cross. Jesus was forsaken and condemned under sin that we might be forgiven and accepted by God. 
Jesus has provided our reconciliation. In fact, in the book of 1 John, chapter 4, the scriptures tell us that because of God's love, he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. Now, that's just a big fancy word that simply means this. Jesus stepped into our sin to take the punishment we deserve so that he has removed God's wrath from us. I face no worry of God's wrath. It has been removed from me because of Jesus on the cross. So that anyone who has come to a place of repentance and faith in Jesus no longer faces the wrath of God. That is the point of this first two verses here of the psalm. To understand the reality that Jesus endured forsakenness so that we could be forgiven and accepted. Listen to how Hebrews describes Jesus in this moment. Hebrews 12, 2. It says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand at the throne of God. That's a curious statement. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. How can the cross be joyful? How could crucifixion be joyful? My friends, it's the prospect of being forsaken by God that there is no joy. Jesus found no joy in being forsaken by God, but our Lord found joy in the prospect of giving reconciliation to each of us if he were forsaken on our behalf. How did he endure the cross? Because he looked forward throughout the centuries and saw your face and said, I will endure this for this one. I will be forsaken for this one. I will become sin and experience the wrath for this one. That's the joy he found, not in the joy that came with crucifixion, but looking ahead, understanding the reconciliation he would provide. We find the description of one forsaken. But the psalm continues. There's another description here. As we move ahead in the psalm, we see the description of one who is lowly. You see this around verse 6. This is Jesus we're talking about. This is God. John 1 says, all things were made through him, by him, for him. Colossians tells us that he maintains everything, keeps everything together. This is God. Yet Jesus, in human form, God as a man, assumed a lowly estate in his earthly life. In fact, you see the description he gives himself here, right? I am a worm. How do you get lower than a worm? I am a worm. No man. I'm a reproach. I'm despised. I'm ridiculed. It's all in text right there. The God of all creation, dawned human form... To be rejected and despised and to be lowly. Hebrews 2.9 says that Jesus made himself a little lower than the angels 
for the suffering of death. Why was he lowly? Why did he come in this estate? For one purpose, to suffer death on the cross. That's why he came. That was his purpose. When the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, stepped out of heaven and assumed human form, it was for one purpose, to die on the cross. That's why he came. He humbled himself. He took on the likeness of man. And being found in the likeness of man, he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. That's why he came. The prophet Isaiah describes him this way. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him, and we despised and did not esteem him. The king of all glory being completely despised by humanity. That's the description we have here. And this is, for the, this is the purpose for which Christ was born into the world. To be despised and rejected. To go to the cross. He even alludes to this in the psalm. There where he says, I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb. From day one, this was the plan. It was always the plan for me to enter the world and to take sin upon myself and to die for humanity. In fact, the scriptures tell us before the foundation of the world, it was determined by God's sovereign plan that Jesus would die for our sins. Before the world was ever made, this was the plan. And Jesus stepped into the plan and he went to the cross to pay for our sins. He was lowly in this. In this lowly estate, he was reproached. He was despised. The king of all glory, the one that the angels bowed before, entered earth and was ridiculed by man, was reproached by those around him, was despised by those he came to save. Even his chosen people rejected him, despised him. The Bible says he came to his own and his own wouldn't even receive him. He was mocked, he was abused, he was blasphemed. You get a sense of that here in the text in verse 7 and 8 where the text says he trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him since he delights in him. That's a foreshadowing of those Pharisees who stood there to cross and said, well, he said he trusted in God, let God save him. Uh, he said he was God, let's see what he can do. He was blasphemed, he was ridiculed, he was mocked. God was offering himself for the salvation of the world, and those around him blasphemed him. Sadly, the reality is in our world today, maybe even for some of you, you blaspheme the risen Lord. You mock and ridicule faith. You're here just because grandma or grandpa wanted you here and you don't have anything better to do. But Jesus willingly, willingly forfeited his rightful place of glory and majesty, trading his life for a life of modesty, of servanthood, of suffering and death. Jesus even said, I have no place to lay my head in this world. He didn't parade around this world with pomp and circumstance like a king, although he is the king of kings. He did not inscript others to come and bow and serve him. 
In fact, he said, I have come to serve others and give my life a ransom for many. It's in this humble state that we see Jesus serving God's redemptive plan as the Lamb of God, despised and reproached, dying on the cross to take away sin. And hanging on the cross, being despised, reproached, and blasphemed, what do we find in Jesus in such a lowly estate? In this lowliness, being despised and reproached, Jesus responded with forgiveness. That's what you find in Jesus. Forgiveness. In fact, from the cross, he called out, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. We find a description of one who is so lowly, yet one who is so forgiving. One so full of grace and mercy. This shame and reproach that Jesus endured, this mockery and hatred that he faced, it was all for our forgiveness. It was all that we could be forgiven. It was all that he could offer to us forgiveness. And I tell you this morning, there are none who are outside the forgiveness of Jesus. I don't care who you are, and I don't care what's happened, I don't care what you've done, I don't care what kind of mess you're in, no one is outside the forgiveness of Jesus. In fact, in John 6, in verse 37, Jesus said this, The one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. He says, if you'll just come to me, I'll give you my forgiveness. I'll accept you into the family, and then we'll work on the mess. No one is outside the realms of the forgiveness of Jesus. He was willing to forgive that Sanhedrin who had fraudulently convicted him on make-believe charges. He was willing to forgive those Roman soldiers who abused him, who had crucified him. He was willing to forgive those Israelites who had turned against him and cried out, crucify, crucify. And he is willing to forgive you if you'll simply come to him with a heart of repentance. See, this lowly Jesus on the cross is the forgiving God of grace. And every one of us can understand and know and experience that forgiveness if we simply come to him. There's a third description given here in this text. It is the description of one who is crucified. We cannot ignore the description here. You cannot miss it. If you even know a little bit about the crucifixion of Jesus and you read this psalm, you cannot mistake the description given here. This psalm depicts the suffering of Jesus through crucifixion. Verses 12 through 18 give a summary of this. Now you have to understand this is very remarkable. Because when this was penned by David, crucifixion hadn't even been invented yet. The Roman Empire was still way off in the future. Yet God through the Holy Spirit put it in David's mind to record exactly what was going to happen to the Messiah. We have here a description of crucifixion. You'll notice there in verses 12 and 13 how the enemies of Jesus surround him. How they seek to devour him. As you read the Gospels and you read about the Sanhedrin, you read about the Pharisees, the chief priests, you read about the Sadducees, you read about the ruling elite of Israel and how they conspired to entrap and kill Jesus. You can see them described here. 
We know the adversaries of Christ were fierce, they were powerful, they were ravenous. And they sought to kill him because they were of a world system that sought to destroy the anointed one of God. They didn't even realize it, but they were part of a bigger system. Warring against the kingdom of God and warring against the anointed one, the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ. Yet God is so sovereign that he, walked, he, he, he worked through such wicked men to bring about his plan of redemption. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, you get a glimpse of that where Peter explains to everyone, hey, look, you think you killed Jesus, but here's the reality. You handed him over to wicked men who, by God's own sovereign plan, carried out what God needed done for sin to be paid for. That's how powerful God is. He can work through even wicked people to bring his plans to be. And you see that in the crucifixion. That's what's described here. You also see here Jesus being poured out there in verse 14. He's poured out an offering for sin. He's poured out as a sacrifice for sin. His strength and his blood being poured out from the wounds as he's offered as the atoning sacrifice for sin and poured out before the Lord, poured out on the altar of heaven as the sacrifice to atone for sin. He goes on in that same verse to talk about hanging on the cross and his bones being out of joint. That is the agony of the cross as Jesus hung there and his shoulders would have been pulled out of joint, shooting pain throughout his whole body. What a terrible experience. Continuing in that same verse, Jesus says his heart melted like wax. He says it melted within me. Now, I'm no cardiologist by any means. I'll diagnose you if you need to meet me after church on some things, but I might be wrong. But I've done a lot of reading and talked to some people. And those in the medical field have written and a couple have told me that if a heart ruptures, it can pour forth blood and water. And you get a description of this in the crucifixion, don't you? Remember when that Roman soldier pierced the side of Christ and the scripture said blood and water ran forth? His heart melting within him. The pains of crucifixion, the horrors of crucifixion, the piercing of a spear. Yes, but I also kind of think the melting of a broken heart, broken over the sin of the world that he is bearing for all of us. The brokenness over sinners who he wants to redeem, who he knows one day will reject him. You carry on in this description, you move down to verse 15, you get a, another glimpse of this excruciating thirst and agony, this unimaginable pain that would have gripped Jesus. His strength departed him, overwhelming dehydration took him, and every nerve of his body throbbing with pain. Remember, crucifixion is the cruelest, most painful form of punishment man has ever devised. And he's enduring it. Verse 16, he describes being nailed to the cross. Once again, how amazing that centuries before, before crucifixion had ever been invented, we have the prediction that Jesus would be nailed, that there would be a piercing 
of his hands and feet. It says dogs there in this text. Dogs refer to Gentiles, that's the Romans. So there he's even predicting that this will happen from a Gentile nation. The Romans will do this to me. The Romans will pierce me. The wicked, my abusers, these Roman soldiers. He goes on in verse 17, he talks about being exposed in shame. I count all my bones. They look and they stare at me. Jesus being exposed in shame. That is, he was exposed. His clothes were stripped away. In fact, the soldiers divided up his clothes and cast lots for his undergarment. There he is hanging, exposed in humiliation and shame. Being exposed in such shame, though, that we might be clothed in his righteousness. That's what's happening on the cross. You see, this psalm gives us a description of Jesus bearing our sins upon the cross that through his suffering we might be made spiritually whole, reconciled unto God, given spiritual life. The death of Christ is our death to sin and the resurrection of Jesus is our resurrection into new life. And we have it described right here. Jesus dying on the cross for our sin. And so we have seen a description here in this psalm that's pretty solemn. Jesus is described as forsaken, as being so lowly and ridiculed and despised. He's described as one who is crucified, who has died, all for the purpose of bearing our sin. Not because he deserved it, but because we do. And if the psalm were to stop right there, we would have the worst story in the world. We'd have the worst faith that is known to mankind. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15 says, if this is where the story were to stop, we would have no hope. We would have no forgiveness. We would have no eternal life. Everything we teach Everything we preach, everything we profess would be worthless nonsense, empty and vain, if the story stops right here. If the story were to stop right here, what we believe would be nothing different than what every Buddhist or Hindu or Muslim or anyone else believes. But we're only halfway through the psalm at this point, because there's a whole other part to the story. And that's why we celebrate today. Because there's one last description given here. And that is the description of one who is victorious. Yes, Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins. Yes, he endured the cruelty we deserve. Yes, he died the death that we should experience. But he also brings the victory that only God can bring. Because he has risen from the dead. He is alive right now. Let's just break this part down very quickly. In verses 19 through 31, the second half of this psalm, we see a description of victorious resurrection. The reality that Jesus is alive, he has won the victory, and he imparts victory to us. In fact, what we find here is that the shame and humiliation of Jesus was replaced by supreme glory. 
What looked like ultimate shame and defeat has been replaced by the most supreme, unmatchable glory. Yes, Jesus was forsaken as he bore sin, but he was not forsaken completely. He was not utterly cast out. He has been risen from the dead. In fact, verse 20 alludes to this. In verse 20 there, you'll see the phrase, my precious life. Speaking of the precious life of the Messiah. Now that term really can be interpreted only life or one and only life. So put on your thinking caps here. The one and only life refers to the one and only son. The only begotten life of the only begotten son. This life is delivered. That's the resurrection. The precious life of the only begotten son delivered from the power of death as he exits from the tomb. As he's resurrected into new life. The text here says, verse 24, that the father did not despise nor abhor the affliction of the afflicted. When he cried him or cried to him, he heard. In other words, Jesus wasn't left in the tomb. The afflicted wasn't left in that afflicted state. He was called forth, drawn up by the power of God, resurrected once the Lamb of God offered the suitable sacrifice for the atonement of sin and he was put in the tomb, the Father raised that afflicted Messiah to new life, to a new glory, to a glorified state that can only be imagined. The reality is Jesus is not dead. He's alive. That's why we celebrate this day. That's why we commemorate this day. And I'm going to be honest with you, this day should be so much bigger than Christmas. We should have so much more of a celebration today than we do at Christmas. Because many religious leaders have been born into the world, but only one rose from the dead. Because only one is God. And that's Jesus Christ. Jesus was raised in glory, victorious over death. You see it in this text. He didn't remain in the tomb. In fact, so great is his glory. Let me read you a description of this. From Acts chapter 2, from Philippians chapter 2. Listen to what the Bible says. Jesus, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it, being exalted to the right hand of God. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, to the glory of God the Father. It was impossible for death to hold him because he has the power of God, the resurrection power. He has been raised up, the Bible says, loosed from the pains of death. He's risen today. He's the resurrected Lord. Throughout the Gospels and there in the first part of the book of Acts, you'll see that Jesus appeared to Mary and the other ladies in the garden he appeared to his disciples in the upper room. He appeared to over 500 of his followers. He spent 40 days upon this earth instructing and teaching and encouraging his followers. And when he finally gave the last instructions, the Bible says that he was 
taken up. He ascended on a cloud into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God the Father. He's alive right now. There's no doubt about it. The resurrection Jesus has returned to a supreme place of honor, honor and glory to be worshipped forever and ever because he's risen. He's to be worshipped by men. He's to be worshipped by angels. He's to be worshipped by all creation. He's risen. He's the risen king of kings. He's the ruler of all creation. Verse 28 says that the kingdom is declared and that he is the ruler of all nations. See, that'll come to pass one day when he returns and establishes his earthly kingdom. And he will rule this entire earth in perfect peace. Verse 29 reveals that all will bow before him in his majesty. All will confess that he's truly God. You can't bow down before a dead God. You realize that, right? But Jesus is the living God and everyone will bow before his throne. Verse 25 makes an interesting reference there. I believe it's a reference that the resurrected Lord offered his blood on the altar of heaven. That he took his precious blood, sprinkled it on the horns of the altar in heaven for the remission of our sins. And in doing this, our risen Savior has become the mediator between man and God. That's how 1 Timothy 2 describes him, as a mediator between man and God. Jesus was fully man to represent man to God. He was fully God to represent God to man. So the God-man died the death that man deserves that he could give the life that only God can give. See, that's the story of the cross and the resurrection. He died our death to give the life that only he can give. Resurrected, Jesus lives to give eternal life. In fact, verse 26 speaks of let your heart live forever. It speaks of the satisfaction of those. I believe it speaks of eternal life. The reality that the shed blood of Jesus serves to provide eternal life to all who will come before him with a repentant heart expressing faith. In fact, in John chapter 3, verse 36, in his own words, Jesus explained it this way. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So here's what Jesus said. If you believe on me, you have everlasting life, eternal life, a home in heaven. But if you do not believe, you don't have that life. And in fact, you have the wrath of God placed upon you. Now, let's take that a step further, because in the words of Jesus there, to believe isn't just to believe, okay, Jesus is real, or Jesus existed, or okay, that Bible story, okay, I'll believe that. Believe here, when he says to believe in the Son, means to believe that he is the resurrected Lord who can offer you forgiveness and salvation, so you, through faith, call out to him, Jesus, I truly believe in you. You are the resurrection and the life. You believe the words he spoke in John 11. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And he who ever believes and believes in me shall never die. You call out to him and say, Jesus, I truly believe. I trusted you as the risen Savior. And I'm going to tell you, my friend, if you can't believe in the resurrection, 
you can't have forgiveness. If you can't believe in the resurrection, you can't have eternal life. If you can't believe in the resurrection, you have no place in heaven. If you can't believe in the resurrected Lord, you can't get there. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The only way into heaven is through the resurrected Jesus. We see here also the glory of this resurrection is magnified as the gospel has spread and continues to spread. Verse 27 tells us that this gospel will reach the ends of the world. The glory of Jesus continues to be magnified as the resurrected Savior as the news of Jesus continues to spread around the world. And we see why it's so important for us to be engaged in the work of missions to spread the news that Jesus is alive. Why? Because it spreads his glory. It advances his glory. It magnifies his resurrection. The glory of this resurrection is that all people will come to worship the true and living God through a personal relationship when they hear the gospel. That's what the text says here. All families of nations shall worship before you. Now that doesn't mean all people are saved and go to heaven. It means all people, eventually, the gospel gets to They have an opportunity to respond to the gospel with saving faith. And as such, they are drawn into the saving presence of God. They become a child of God. They're part of the family of God. The glory of the risen Christ expanding as this happens. What happens is this. We have the... We have the resurrected Savior. We have Jesus who is lifted upon a cross. We have Jesus who is lifted up from the grave. And as he is lifted and we proclaim that, he receives glory. And the magnitude of his resurrection spreads. You know this morning the real glory of the resurrection? The real just thing that is the place that can draw us to worship and Just bring us before the Lord with hearts that want to give him adoration. The real significance of this is the reality that Jesus is alive and he continues to save those condemned in sin. The opportunity has not passed anyone by. Anyone who will come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I believe in the Son, the resurrected one. They're imparted with salvation. They're given eternal life. That's the real glory of this whole thing. That's the glory of the victorious work of Jesus. The glory of Christ's victory. It's his righteousness being declared through all the world. From generation to generation as generations experience new life through Jesus. See, this psalm, it's a psalm of the cross. But it's also a celebration of victory. Because the cross was an avenue to the resurrection. The resurrection is an avenue for new life. It's the new life that you and I can know. It's the new life that you and I need to tell others. In fact, it is our obligation to declare the resurrection to everyone we know. In Luke 24, Jesus says this. Thus it is written... And thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and 
to rise from the dead the third day. That repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations. So where does the resurrection leave us as believers? Right there. That the glory of his death and resurrection should be shared so that repentance and remission of sin can come to all nations. I wonder today, those of you who are born-again believers, has this weekend, today in particular, been an avenue for you to proclaim the death and the resurrection of your Savior so that others might understand repentance and the remission of sins? Or has it become a fury of shopping and finding clothes and buying candy and going to this place and that place and this place and make sure we get home to get the crock pot and this and that and get over to so-and-so's house and so on and so on and so on and tomorrow will come, the resurrection day will pass and mm, I miss my opportunity to celebrate with others. Here's the importance of the resurrection. Jesus died and rose again that repentance and remission of sin can be known. We have an interesting way of taking those things which are of the utmost critical importance and diluting them with a bunch of nonsense. So I'm just going to leave you with two things this morning. One is this. Jesus said, if you do not believe in the Son, you do not have life, you have the wrath of God upon you. On this day, do you sit here with the wrath of God upon you? In a condition where you are separated from God because of your sin, destined to an eternity of experiencing the wrath of God in a place the Bible calls hell. If that's you, you don't have to stay there. The Bible says this, All you have to do is confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. In your own words, from the sincerity of your heart, you simply call out to him and say, Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner and I admit that I can't do things right. I admit that I can't be forgiven on my own. I admit I can't make it on my own. But right now, Jesus, I'm confessing you died for sin and you have risen and I'm calling out to you, Jesus, will you forgive me? Will you give me eternal life? And he will. Here's the second thing I want to leave with you. If you know you've done that, you're sitting there saying, look, no problem. I'm assured of that. I'm confident in my salvation. Great. I wonder if you're following the words that Jesus spoke here. It was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name. Are you letting this day be what it's about for the purpose of those around you understanding repentance and the remission of sin through the resurrected Lord? Or have you let it become the tinsel and the eggs?